0: Let's get into the Word. We're going to get into a new series today. And if you've been here long enough, somebody's like, yes, finally, finally. Come on now. Mark was great. (laughs) But, But we're going to get into a new series. If you've been around here for a while, you know that at New Life, we talk all the time about making disciples, right? But we're going to talk about what that term really mean what those words mean so over the next eight weeks we're going to do a deep dive into that question the series is called the how of discipleship the how of discipleship here's the question what does a growing disciple of jesus christ really look like i hope That we would all be able to answer that in some ways. It certainly must look like uh, a person who loves God more and more. Right? And then that shows up in your relationships and in your life as a person who also loves people more and more. Somebody ought to say amen right now. But here's the question that I'm wrestling with and will wrestle with through this series. How do we really break that down? How do we form disciples that love God like that and love others like that? And what we're going to do in this series is do a deep dive really on our mission statement. And so let me reframe the question this way. What does, it, what does a well-formed disciple of jesus christ actually look like and live like amen so here's number one number one they're growing in their understanding of god themselves and the world in a way that inspires and empowers them to live more like christ Amen. That is the first part of our mission statement in how we make disciples. And that is equipping every member. We need to be an equipped people to do the work of God. Number two, they're dedicated to a life of self-sacrificing Service or self-sacrificial service. This is the second part of our mission statement that we're serving in ministry. Disciples are servants. Amen. You can't be a disciple for long and just sit down and soak in. At some point, if you're going to grow in God, that means that you're going to have to pour out somewhere. That's called service. Amen. Thirdly. What do, what do the well formed disciples look like? They live in close community with other believers. That is our value in the mission statement of connecting in community. We're going to really do a deep dive on that because what happens is even when we are quote unquote in community, we still know how to live in the American way. That is in the independent spirit. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do my thing. You do your thing. That's not God's thing. Amen. And then, and then finally, um, we're also those who are, they consistently reach out to others around them to demonstrate Jesus' love in word and deed. We are engaging. And our last part of our mission statement says, we're engaging our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? Anyone and everyone around you. Amen. Anyone and everyone around you. So we're going to uh, jump into all those things, but we're going to start today With the idea of equipping. So our first two sermons are going to be on equipping. New Life Philly wants to be a place, needs to be a place, must be a place where uh, every member is equipped to grow in Christ. What does that mean? That means that I'm going to use an old word, y'all. Some people don't like it anymore. That means we're growing in holiness. Somebody say holiness. Holiness holiness that, that that means we're winning more battles against sin against our flesh that that means that you're growing in your love toward others that means you're you're learning to treasure the well-being of other people more than your own comfort we're growing in our love for God and that means that you're growing in your desire, hear me with this, to be with God. Simply to be with God. In, in, I, I didn't talk with the worship team, but the, the songs that they sung today were so in line with this, this message. The song that they sung, here in your presence, at the, in the chorus of that song says, Here in your presence we are undone. Here in your presence, heaven and earth. Become one. Do you know that God's plan for your life is not that one day you get up on out of here and go to heaven. That's not his plan. His plan is that heaven comes down. He, it restores a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. His plan is to come and merge heaven and earth and his glory will cover the earth as the water cover the sea. That's his plan. Here in your presence. and so that is what it looks like. Above all, we know that only God's power is going to enable us to make that kind of progress in our lives. So let me just look real quick at Ephesians 411 and 12 because the, the scripture tells us that the major Function of church leaders is not to do all the ministry in the church. <laughs> it says it this way, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, why? So that they could get their name on a billboard and become famous. <laughs> no, 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 no. So that they can equip his people, God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. The function of leadership in any church and any ministry, if it's understood rightly, is to equip God's people to grow in Christ, to do the work of God, and to be unified in giving glory to his name. That is the function of leadership. So here, here's my question simply to us as the people gathered here today. Is there anyone here who wants to be equipped in that way? I'm glad I heard a few amens. That's good. I know I need to be more equipped. Equipping doesn't stop until heaven and earth become one. Until we're with him in his presence all the time in every way. And sin is abolished forever. So, so the question that I have is so what is equipping? What do we mean by equipping? I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. And, and Merriam-Webster said this. Equipping, number one, is to furnish for service by appropriate provisioning. As in to equip an army. Number two, it's to dress or array, to put it on, to get equipped. Number three, it is to make ready. And in the dictionary it has, uh, in in brackets, he wasn't equipped to handle the job. So it's this idea of putting on something, dressing up in something, being furnished so that you can appropriately, appropriately do what you've been called to do. So what do you think of when you think of being equipped as a disciple of Christ? I'm going to tell them myself a little bit today. Uh, as I began to sit in God's presence today, uh, this week, I was well along in my sermon preparation. I had a lot of verses from epistles um, as I was doing this. And God changed the entire direction of this sermon today. As I sat in his presence in many ways for me, when I think of being equipped as a Christian, I think of studying. I think of reading. I think of podcasts and YouTube sermons. (laughs) I I think of mastering new material, memorizing scriptures. I, I think of the things that I do to put on this full armor of God and get equipped like a football player. Putting on his helmet, his shoulder pads, putting on his cleats and all the the body armor that they gear up with. They're ready to go into battle. And, And when I think that way, I think, well, I got it right in the Bible, Ephesians 4. Take off the old self and put on the new. It's this equipping that I'm doing mostly through study, through reading, through memorizing, through classes, through all of these ways. God stopped me. As I sat in his presence, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, and he showed me, Larry, you're missing something big. It's not that we shouldn't read the Bible and other good books. It's not that we shouldn't study, study to show yourself approved. That's in the book, right? It's not that we shouldn't memorize scripture, meditate on it day and night, Psalm 1. It's not that we shouldn't do any of those things. But what God impressed on me was this right here. Cognitive discipleship techniques left to themselves are utterly inadequate to produce permanent and transformative spiritual It's a lot of big words there. What what I mean is, if it's all just what you're doing with your head, your heart and life won't be transformed from the inside out. And that is what the Lord has for his people. I would say, unfortunately, in the Protestant tradition of which I'm a part and I think just about everybody here is a part. We've missed some of the greatest keys that God has for us in true spiritual formation. Now, I'm going to talk about Bible reading and study and academic type learning. I will talk a lot about that next week um, and we'll give some resources on it. But I want to make sure that we go deeper than that, actually way deeper than that. I, I believe that the evangelical church in our country today is in the poor shape it is in in many ways because we've weighed so heavily on the academic, on the cognitive, and even on what we do that we've missed the very things that allow us to be internally formed as disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way. When we do Bible study gymnastics, when we can show off in, what, what do they call that when you're memorizing scripture? The sword things. What do they call that? Sword drills. Okay. When we become the master of the sword drills. I got that verse. I got that verse. That doesn't guarantee in any way that you will experience a growing hunger and thirst for God. Somebody says that that can't be true. That can't be true. Listen, almost anyone who's gone to Bible college or to seminary knows exactly what I'm talking about. When, when, when studying the word becomes so much an academic pursuit, it often leads, most of the time leads to places of spiritual dryness. And a dangerous emptiness if there are not other critical dynamics at at work. Let me just share this before I move forward. Um, I live my life very often and, and right now in a place where I'm often just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by grief. Overwhelmed by tragedy, overwhelmed by the pain that I see around me being experienced in this world, even if I'm not experiencing it directly myself. I, as I pray with others and as they often offer me a privileged place in their life and invite me into their personal suffering invited into the suffering in my family my neighbors my brothers and sisters here at new life i continue to look at the brokenness in our city day after day our nation our world i'm overwhelmed my best guess is that i've been involved in about 250 to 300 funerals i don't know the exact number I buried both of my parents, many other family members, neighbors, infants, little children, teenagers, victims of gun violence, drug overdose, suicide, accidents, and those ravaged by cancer and other diseases. I've held hands with people who seem to have a strong walk with God and to see them just about lose it as they're facing death. That's rattled me. And I've seen other believers looking and staring at death with peace in their hearts. That's blessed me. Here's what I understand. An academic Cognitive understanding of God will not keep me sane or help me walk in this world where grief is everywhere. It won't do it. And so today we're going to look at contemplative spirituality just a little for a little bit as a part of our equipping and what we need to truly grow in Christ. So I've asked two people, uh, Maranatha and Rob, to come up today, instead of standing together to read the Word of God, I'm going to have them read for us from Psalm 63, 1 through 8. And I I wanted them to do this because if you look at this psalm, and if we simply read it together, as we often do, we don't have the emotional content That is really in these words. Amen. So I wanted to bring out some of that. And so uh, let me pray as we get ready to receive God's word. And when I'm done praying. Rob and Maranatha you can read for us. Father. Prepare our hearts to hear your word. Shape us. By your spirit. Be with us in these moments now. We come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You, God, God are my God. God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in in a dry dry and and parched land where where there is no no water. water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise Praise you as as long long as as I live. live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I I cling cling to to you. you. Your right right hand hand upholds me. me. Amen. Amen. Thank you. A title today is Equipping 101, Growing in a Hunger for God growing in hunger for God. Can I share some sad news with you today? Thank you. (laughs) Um, Your life will always be full of voids. Your life will always be full of that. I remember as a young Christian and, and learning how to do evangelism, Some of you know this and we we talk about every person has a God shaped void in their heart. Right. And only Jesus can meet that void. And and I believe that that is correct. But I don't believe that the implication of that is that if I simply give my heart and life to Jesus, I'm not going to have any voids anymore. Amen. I found out over almost 40 years It don't work like that. Somebody ought to say amen right now. Amen. Over and over again in life, we experience uh, voids and and broken places in our lives. In a sin-filled world uh, with an active enemy against us and a world that is bent away from God, there's no way to avoid it. Over and over and over and over again, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, sometimes even minute after minute, you're going to experience that brokenness and that void. What do we do with it? The question is never, is there a void in your life? The question is always, how will you learn to deal with it, to overcome it, or perhaps to live with it? Because sometimes they don't go away. Does anyone know what I'm talking about right now? And the truth is, there's only two ways that we can deal with those voids. I'm going to give you the first one. and, And some brave person, if you can tell me what the second one is. Okay, get ready. So number one, the first way we can do it is with God's help. Who wants to tell me the second way? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Without God's help. There's only two ways to do that. And we should remember that the essence of sin, we see it in Genesis 3 and then we see it throughout the Bible, is I can do this without God. I can do it without God. And it might seem innocuous. It might seem like it's not that big of a deal. It's not that far away. I'm not straying that far. What I'm doing is not so bad. But when you are doing it independent of your reliance on God, you will find yourself in sin. So God needs to help us. When we talk about contemplative spirituality, we're talking about beginning an inner journey to knowing God and knowing ourselves better. Most especially, this journey is aided by times of silence and solitude. That's not much in the evangelical tradition. I'll talk more about that. One of the 20th century's greatest writers on the subject is a man named Henry Nowen. And Nowen put it this way. Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live The spiritual, to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to Him. So as we look at being equipped as disciples of Jesus, the first thing we need to consider is growing in a genuine hunger for God. Did you see that in this psalm? It's all over it. The the, the psalmist says, David is the psalmist, and he says, earnestly I seek you. He says, I thirst for you. He said, my whole being longs for you, God. You see the passion stirring up David's heart in those words. I love verse 5. He says, I will be fully satisfied with the as with the richest foods. David is in the desert, the scripture says. But but David doesn't say I'll be satisfied if you get me some of the richest food. I'll be satisfied if you can get me some Gatorade, God. I'm thirsty right through here. That's not what David says. He says, God, I want you. I'm hungry and thirsty for you. He says, I'm longing for you with my whole whole being. The word there is soul, nefesh. With my whole being, all that I am, I long for you. He said, I'm not going to be satisfied with a cheesesteak right now. I'm not going to be satisfied. Lord, help me with a Chick-fil-A peach milkshake right now. I won't be satisfied with a 16-ounce medium grilled, grilled cross-grilled ribeye right now. I'm not going to be satisfied with the richest of foods, the best of foods. God can fill me, and I need God to fill me in a way that nothing and no one else can. There is no chocolate dessert that can curb my craving for the living God. That's what David is saying. I find it interesting here that David is writing in the desert. He's in a dry place, no water, harsh conditions, a place, the desert, the place of suffering, the place of hardship. But he's not looking for that kind of food. In other words, here's, What I want to say about David's passion. God is not seen by David as a means to an end. Get me some good stuff, God. This is what I need from you, God. Instead, God himself is the end that David desires. God himself is the end that David desires. Do you get that? Do you hear that? I promise you that as that reality becomes more and more true in your life, it will transform the way you pray. I'm challenged by this psalm. I realize that I can't say consistently that my craving looks just like Psalm 63. My craving zigs and zags at times. It goes up and down. It goes in and out. And I realize this, that all of the learning that I've experienced, all that I've done and all that I will do will not change that. It will not keep me in that place of longing. I hope you hear that for yourself as well. But there's something more going on here. We just went through this terrible Hurricane and particularly Florida did. I just heard today that some levees broke in another part of the state, and that so there's more flooding. It's a terrible and tragic thing. Many people have lost their lives. But in the same way that the warm ocean and gulf waters give fuel to that hurricane, allow it to grow quickly in strength in the same way that. That fuels the hurricane. There is something that fuels that ravenous hunger for God. That learning is never going to approach. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we just sang about. Experiencing the presence of God. Being in his presence. Consciously aware God is here. Being aware of that a palpable expression and experience of his presence. That's what contemplative spirituality is about. The problem is that we have not been trained that way, particularly in Protestant circles and evangelical circles. For many of us, discipled in American evangelical spirituality, We always look for experiencing God in the big flashy things, the shiny things, the amazing praise that praise was off the hook. It was lit. God was there. Amen. I love good praise in in amazing preaching. Oh, that was so deep. I never heard that before. It's so deep. It's so wonderful. And, And good preaching is an awesome thing to experience. But. We are often looking for the presence of God in the biggest, glitziest, glamorous, shiniest thing we can find. I call that Super Bowl spirituality. It's got to be bigger and better and we can show people. See? See what that looks like? That's it. That's it. We're looking for some unmistakable, powerful force outside of us. Outside of us. That produces an emotional high of feeling that proves God is real. But Super Bowl spirituality is almost never how God comes to us. It's not how God does his interior surgical work of setting our hearts in a right place. That's not how God does it. Ask Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, he's on the mountain and he uh, calls down the power of God and all these prophets are dispersed and and many of them are are killed because the fire of God rains down through this powerful prophet. But in chapter 18, Elijah is running for his life because Jezebel said, by this time tomorrow, you are a dead man. You're a dead man. And so Elijah is running from God. And finally he finds himself in this place of utter weakness. Of utter frailty. And he needs to hear the voice of God. You know the story many of you do. There comes this mighty powerful wind that moves everything around. But God is not in the mighty wind. There's a a fire that consumes everything in its path it's mighty it's 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 bright it's hot but god is not in the fire finally not only is there the wind not only is there the fire but there's a powerful earthquake something that can move Mountains and caused tsunamis. A powerful earthquake. But the Bible says God was not in the earthquake. Now here's Elijah at the end of the end of the end of his wits. And God speaks to Elijah. One translation says in a still small voice. One way to Express that would be a silent whisper. God speaks in a silent whisper. And this, brothers and sisters, is our dilemma. This is the great difficulty that we face because our lives are so busy. Our lives are so full because we're so important. Because so much going on that we are too busy to hear God's silent whisper too overwhelmed with the frenzy of the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to actually stop and experience the presence of God. I want to reorient the way we think about prayer. Prayer, many times, is primarily putting out our to-do list before God. Amen? Amen. Now, if we're real good at prayer, we realize that before we put out the to do list, we have to prepare the way with some praise. Right. With some Thanksgiving. Let's do that. Let's do that. But now we're going to get to the main event. Here's the list. God, you got it. You hear it. You got to do this now because your word said, if I ask, it's going to happen. You got to do this. God, you got to be careful about laying out. The agenda for God today. Amen. (laughs) He laughs when we lay out the agenda. He calls us to pray. He does call us to ask. I'm not saying that that's not a part of what we're doing. But I'm saying that's not the heart of it. It's not the heart of it. In the evangelical tradition. It's interesting to me. That we emphasize. That salvation. Is not just religion. Some people say we're not a religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. Has anyone heard that before? Well, it's all right to have some religion, but, but it is a relationship. It is a relationship with God. But here's what I find interesting in this tradition that, that emphasizes it's a relationship. We often don't have a time in that relationship to hear from the other party. Amen. We don't have a time to hear from God himself. I believe that we do great damage To people when we tell people that the only legitimate means of hearing from God is through the Bible. I love the Bible. If y'all have been here any length of time, you know, I do. So don't 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 talk about my credentials on that. I love the word of God. But it is spiritual malpractice. To tell people that the only place you'll ever hear God is in the pages of that book. God is a speaking God. And he wants to speak to you. He's not telling you which sock to put on first. At least he's never done that to me. And you've been around someone that talks like that, right? I woke up this morning, God said, put on your left sock because it's not the right hand of God that you need right now. It's the left hand of God. What does that mean? I'm not talking about spookified Christianity where we get weird like that, but I am talking about a posture where we're saying, God, I need your voice. I need your guidance. Help me. And so I'm going to do something real quick that I want to share with you and I did not plan to do this, but yesterday in the morning, I spent time with the Lord in Psalm 63, but really, I just, and I wasn't even planning to go into Psalm 63 in my time with the Lord, but I just said, I'm going to set aside time for silence and for solitude to lay before God, to wait on God. And in that time, as I was waiting on God, I begin to think of every other thing in the world that I needed to do and what I had to do to get ready for today and uh, and what color I needed to paint something and and how I needed to do this, that and the other thing. Have you ever been there? I'm waiting on the Lord, but everything else is just coming in. So it took some time to get there. But the Lord led me to Psalm 63 and, and verse one. You are you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And I'm just going to read to you exactly what I wrote after about an hour of just saying, God, I I need you. I need to hear from you. Here's what I wrote. David is in the desert, a dry and parched land. And he's not seeking water, but God. I believe that there is an invitation here to me. At first, I saw this invitation to prepare to prepare for deaths, not just physical, but deaths of every sort, deaths to dreams, death to hope, hopes, death to the notion that I can figure out life and make it work. But I see something more here as well. As a Christian, death is never The end. There's resurrection. So the invitation is deeper. It's an invitation to no longer fear death because it has been conquered. I cannot master the world, but I can trust in God's hand even when I don't understand, which is most of the time. And then I wrote... This prayer, Lord, help me to accept your hand and to grow in my thirst and longing for you. This thirst is a desert thirst. It doesn't happen at Applebee's. It's a thirst in the midst of life's desolations. It doesn't seek fixes, but seeks God alone. Oh Lord, help me to seek you with a whole heart. This is the last thing I wrote. This gives me fear of what is ahead. God, help me to press into you. That's what I wrote yesterday. Let me just finish up with this. In her book, Invitation to Silence and Solitude, Ruth Haley Barton compares our need for silence and solitude to a jar of water from the river. When it's shook up and when it's moving, it's murky and it's unclear because all the dirt and sediment in that jar of water is stirred up. You can't see through that jar. This is the way that our lives are. Busy, on the go. Get the next thing done. And even if we're not busy with stuff to do. We get busy about entertainment. Busy about other things. We've got to be busy. Don't stop. And we're moving. And the jar is murky. And you can't see through it. But if you simply put the jar down. If you just don't touch it for a while. And leave it alone all of a sudden a miracle happens. And this murky water that you couldn't see through now becomes perfectly clear. And you can see through it. That is God's invitation to us in being equipped in contemplative spirituality. This is equipping 101 because without a growing hunger for God... Fueled by that clear awareness of His presence, Psalm 63 will never become real in your life or in mine. So when you make a practice of slowing down, stopping in the presence of God, time after time after time after time, you will experience a clarity that might not have words for it but you'll know God's love and you'll know his care and you'll grow in your trust in him in the next year in the coming year we'll be doing more teaching on this subject contemplative spirituality we'll be posting some resources on it to help us all develop contemplation as part of our lifestyles believers we do that in sermons hopefully we'll do that in a class perhaps even a retreat as we look to make disciples for Christ who are developing a countercultural lifestyle of slowing down let the sediment fall let clarity come and see him For who he truly is.